Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 97? I know that's different than the Bolton says, but uh, Psalm 97, if you're grabbing a blue Bible under the chair in front of you, it can be, uh, can be found on page 483. As Ken mentioned, last week we wrapped up our vision campaign, and uh, I thought I'd give us a mental break by introducing something light, the gospel and politics. <laughs> you can uh, order a mental health check uh, of your pastor after today. Uh, if you've been sleeping for a few weeks, today just might rouse you from hibernation, and like uh, feisty bears waking up, you might have a little feistiness of yourself. Um, I am anticipating that... Some of you uh, will be upset with me, and I'm okay with that, but uh, my hope is that we can disagree on these things and uh, interact on biblical grounds. I struggled uh, trying to put my muddled thoughts together this week until Friday I opened up a book by uh, a pastoral friend of mine named Charlie Drew. Some of you know Charlie. He's a senior pastor of Emmanuel Presbyterian right across the river uh, in Martingside Heights, uh, retiring in the next few months. But uh, one of his books is called A Public Faith. And he begins by reading Psalm 97, and I'll do the same. Um, just the outline is his. All the muddled thinking to follow can be blamed on me. Psalm 97. Listen carefully. These are God's words. <clears throat> the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. This is God's word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you reign. We crown you with many crowns. We exalt you as Lord of all the earth. We say how great is our God. There is none like you. You are King of kings, the Lord of lords. All nations bow before your might. And this day, we simply affirm what has always been and always will be. And we do so in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Again, uh, I, I borrowed Charlie's outline uh, to help me put these thoughts together. And uh, we start with don't panic. <clears throat> don't panic. Biblical values are under attack in America, no question. Religious freedom is increasingly at risk in America, land of First Amendment rights, no question. 
just in the past decade, there have been some startling developments on issues that concern biblically-minded Christians, like the sanctity of human life. We've learned shocking details about the market for baby parts. Uh, It seems that our country's sentiment drifts farther and farther away from protecting the lives of the unborn, like the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage and state laws regarding gender and sexuality that strike at the heart of God's design of man and woman, uniquely created in His image, like religious liberties, your freedom to speak your mind on whatever topic you choose has more and more asterisks next to it. Depending on the majority culture uh, and what it considers tolerant and acceptable. In my lifetime, I believe making uh, Bible based statements about sin will be prosecuted as hate speech. And your right to stand by your biblical convictions may cost you your job and perhaps your future employability. Biblical values are under attack. The influence of Judeo-Christian values is fading in our country, and these values have not only become a minority position, they are already the subject of ridicule and persecution. The next 10 to 15 years will tell a lot about whether religious freedom is just a label and more of a fiction in the land of the free. All of that feeds a major theme of this year's election cycle, fear. Fear of how a new administration will accelerate these trends. There's no question that the balance of power on the Supreme Court for the next 30 plus years will largely depend on who is elected president, not to mention dozens of appointments to federal and appellate court positions that together decide 99% of all federal cases. Fear of a liberal president advancing a liberal agenda is leading many Americans to vote for the second most flawed or the second worst candidate out there. On the other hand, fear of racism, of sexism, prejudice against women, imperialism, and just plain craziness... (laughs) is leading other Americans to vote with the same motivation, just on the opposite side of the ledger. 2016, you don't need me to tell you this, has become the election of the lesser of two evils. So what is a biblical Christian to do? Should that be the overriding principle guiding our votes? I've read a bunch of articles by thoughtful Christian leaders whose biblical faith I would never question, And some of these articles explain why they are persisting in their vote for Donald Trump. And the most compelling reason that comes up in every article like that is the future balance of the Supreme Court. There's a fear of judicial overreach. That's a term used by some to describe uh, results when it's believed that uh, the Supreme Court has legislated from the bench. It's overstepped its originally designed role in the three um, parts of our U.S. government. Court decisions have taken away states' rights, for example, to determine how to deal with gay marriage 
and uh, states' rights to figure out what restrictions on abortion are appropriate and necessary. A Clinton administration would absolutely advance the sexual revolution in direct opposition to the church's biblical values. But here's my emphasis this morning. If our votes are driven largely, if not entirely, by fear of what one or the other candidate will mean for the future of the United States of America, and if that fear leads us to set aside biblical convictions and look the other way, I don't believe we're seeking the greatest good. That's where we go secondly, seeking God's global glory. The greatest good is not the present flourishing and the future preservation of the United States of America. That's not the greatest good. Nor is the greatest good a return to a culture in our country that more commonly shares Christian values. That's not the greatest good either. Those are high goods. Those are good goods. They're not the highest goods. That perspective... Um, that seeks the flourishing of the United States and seeks a return to Christian values, as good as it may be, it assumes when it f- plays out in um, our enacted politics and our decisions in the voting booth, that, the, that perspective assumes, number one, that human wisdom can somehow determine what is the highest good. And that's an illusion. And secondly, it assumes that the greatest good is defined by conservative politics. It's also an illusion. And thirdly, it assumes that voting for a deeply flawed flawed candidate is not only okay, but it has become a noble thing to do to protect that good from being lost. Not true. That's the troubling result of a chain of logic that begins with a humanly established goal that is utilizing mere human wisdom, and then that end justifies the means. By the way, if the best this country can produce after a months-long, hard-fought primary process is Hillary and the Donald, does it make any sense to think that the greatest good can come from either person sitting in the Oval Office as President of the United States? Psalm 97 points us to what should always be our highest good, seeking the glory of God. You know, when John Working and I were chatting a couple weeks back, he was poking me on on this particular topic and saying, "What, what theme should we hit? And I said, I don't know. But all I can think of is a song that makes perfect sense to sing on this Sunday is Crown Him With Many Crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. And that includes the inauguration song, the music played on that uh, morning when the new president is put into office. The heavenly anthem drowns out every other sound because Jesus is on the throne. Our highest good is seeking the glory of God. And not just here in America, but throughout the world. The kingdom of God is not limited to or dependent on any single country, even the greatest country on the face of this earth, the U.S. of A. The Lord reigns, verse 1 says. That is a political statement. 
who's in charge, who rules, who has authority, who has greatest influence, Yahweh, L-O-R-D in caps, the personal name of God. He specifically reigns. It's no less true today than it was in the writing of Psalm 97. And the psalmist doesn't say, let Israel be glad. He certainly doesn't write, let America be glad. He says, let the um, distant shores rejoice. Let the earth be glad. The nations, the global community. Verse 4, the earth sees and trembles. Verses 5 and 9 say that he is the Lord of all the earth. Verse 6 says, all peoples see his glory. The global glory of God is always our greatest good. And we're reminded of that, not just in an election season, but every Sunday when we gather for worship and every time you open your Bible and get on your knees in prayer before the King of all kings, the global glory of God is our highest good. First Timothy 2 in the New Testament does indeed tell God's people to pray for all people especially for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. But this passage does not say that living in all godliness and holiness depends on who is sitting in the office of the president. The very next verses say, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind the man, Christ Jesus. Yes, the kings of the earth, those who are in authority, play a, an important role in bringing about and, and bringing about and maintaining peace. But only the Prince of Peace himself, Jesus Christ, is deserving of all of our hope that he will bring about what we long for. In contrast... Much of what some Christians are writing in support of Trump, for example, is influenced by what I'll call patriotolatry. It's the idolatry of uh, a, a certain definition of what it means to be a faithful citizen of the United States of America. A patriotolatry uh, looks like an overemphasis on the influence of the U.S. government, on the kingdom of God. There is a too close association between this nation and what God is up to. And it shows deep flaws when it leads to biblical, unbiblical convictions, when it leads to excusing ungodliness in the interest of certain goals and policies. Psalm 97 was written for Israel, a theocracy at the time, uh, directly ruled by God Himself. And at the time, for a season, the kingdom of God was contained in a particular nation by God's design for purposes that had limited duration. But that has never described the United States of America. People can argue about whether we were founded as a Christian nation or not. If your answer to that question is a resounding yes, our country still has never had the status, unique status that Israel had for that stretch of her history. And here's what's most relevant for us to um, meditate on at coming out of Psalm 97. Verse 2, for example, describes the Lord 
in his utter holiness. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. If you read through Exodus and Leviticus, even into the book of Numbers, uh, at Mount Sinai, and then in the tabernacle, the traveling church tent throughout the wilderness, clouds and and thick darkness um, represent the glory of God, the holiness of our King, the unapproachability of who He is in His perfections. And even Israel, chosen nation, theocracy, kingdom of God located for a time within her nation. Even Israel, because of her sin, because of her her rejection of her holy set-apart identity, which flowed out of the holiness of God, even Israel was set off into exile. Even Israel, Israel was allowed to be destroyed by her king, abandoned for generations. Why? Because God's salvation plans... And his revelation of his holy being and character and ways have always been far more important than the flourishing or mere existence of any given nation. Why do we think the United States of America is exempt if even Israel was not in history? It leads us, that thought of holiness, to our last outline element, hate evil. Words and themes that are littered throughout the psalm uh, include righteousness and justice. They're all over the place. And right living starts with turning away from the folly of worshiping idols, verse 7. It says, all who worship images are put to shame those who boast in idols. Worship Him, all you gods. One author and political commentator named Eric Erickson wrote this, While I think Clinton will do long-term damage to the country, I believe Trump will do far more damage to the church. A Clinton administration may see the church besieged from the outside, but a Trump administration will see the church poisoned from within. You might not agree with that. Personally, when I read that, I thought, he nailed it. He nailed it. Which is the lesser of two evils. (laughs) There's a witness element of the church at stake in this election? What message will the church send to a watching world in her support of this or that candidate? Will the bride of Christ stand for what is good and holy and righteous and pure is a witness question because the world is always watching with a critical eye, with a bias, um, with a chip on its shoulders. One of our members, not associated with the the political election uh, cycle, but one of our members recently shared with me how Mexican, many Mexican immigrants, not all, but many Mexican immigrants here in the metro New York area still have an anti-Catholic sentiment, sometimes generally an anti-religion attitude, and it's rooted in the centuries-old resentment of Spain, which brought Catholicism to Mexico. It's, it's all rooted in the manner in which the European conquistadors came in and claimed the native land for themselves and disrespected the indigenous people. After all this time, uh, immigrants to the United States who hail from Mexico, who weren't around when the conquistadors came and pillaged, after all this time, continuing to blame the Catholic Church may 
be unfair, it may seem unrational, but it still breeds resentment against the church. That witness has lasted, that bad witness has lasted hundreds of years. I've honestly been shocked at reading how some Christians uh, have supported Donald Trump. James Dobson, for example, this is available all on his own webpage. I don't believe, by the way, he's an effective representative of evangelical biblical Christianity, but James Dobson is a prominent Christian activist and has been well-respected for his writings on the family. He has a page on his website titled, Donald Trump's Christian Faith. Hmm. Got my attention. This is the second or third sentence in the article. First, Trump appears to be tender to things of the Spirit. Huh? Let me read that again. First, Trump appears to be tender, you can stop right there, (laughs) tender, to things of the Spirit. It doesn't matter whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not. It doesn't matter whether you have any sense of a theology of the Holy Spirit, nor whether you agree with any of James Dobson's thoughts on the family. After that sentence, I'm shooting straight here, folks. There is no point in listening to anything that man has to say on the topic of politics. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that is precisely why you don't want anything to do with Christianity. Do you understand what I mean when I say there's a witness element at stake in this election? This kind of junk... This man has wonderful things to say about God's design for the family on Bible grounds. And his voice and his ministry for decades, in my mind, is largely thrown away with a sentence like that. Why? I believe he has succumbed to patriotolatry and has set as a higher goal than the global glory of God, which, of which the church is... Uh, God's chosen ambassador, he has set above that highest goal, the goal of conservative policy and the goal of seeing Christian values continue to be predominant in the United States of America. Well, that was never God's point, never his um, greatest goal to call his church to work and pray and sacrifice towards at least Wayne Grudem, he's a respected seminary professor and prolific, prolific writer, at least in some of his articles, he put together some thoughtful reasons why he will, even after the video, continue to support Donald Trump. I don't agree with Wayne Grudem, but he's put some thoughtful reasons together uh, in, in his articles. Neither candidate has demonstrated integrity. Neither candidate inspires confidence that they will listen to people who strongly disagree with their point of view. Each candidate has left a trail of lies and destruction. I don't think you'd disagree with any of those statements. So what is a Christian to do? I believe two scenes from the book of the prophet Daniel can help us. In the first chapter, we read that Daniel and his friends, quote, resolved not to defile themselves with the royal food and wine. They had been selected by their new king in um, a foreign land, in exile, to serve as his special subjects. They were to be cared for, well-fed, uh, 
uh, nurtured in body and mind, and they took a huge risk in sticking to what they believed was right with no logic to support their goal, no, no reasoned way forward to get out of that mess. But after 10 days of eating only vegetables and drinking only water, keep in mind, mere water risked contamination back in the day, they were healthier and more vigorous than any of their peers. On top of that, verse 17 says, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. In exile, away from family, under threat of death, with no logic between here and there, God says, don't worry, I'll provide all that you need. It doesn't make sense. You can't see the way. Trust me. In the third chapter, Daniel's three friends are told to bow down and worship a gold statue or be thrown into the blazing fire and die. Here's their response. If uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand, with all due respect. But even if he does not... We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. No way to figure this out, your majesty. (laughs) We're not doing that. I don't know how this is going to turn out for me. I might burn to a crisp. I'm not compromising my biblical convictions. Yes, it seems easier to just bow down and do everything that everyone else is doing and, and be on my way and compromise but before God, I can't. Do the right thing in a hopeless situation. It is not your job to see the path forward. It is not your job to see that um, uh, how the math adds up politically and how the next 30 years of Supreme Court decisions are going to affect the church. Don't compromise biblical principles. Leave the results to God. I think that's a as good of a lesson as any on October 30th with 10 days to go. Listen to Russell Moore, uh, a voice I greatly respect. As Christians, we can engage politics and culture without becoming either outraged or indifferent. If we believe we are on the side, a losing side of history, we slide into the rage of those who know their time is short. I think that's very astute. But we have no reason to be fearful or sullen or mean. We're not the losers of history. We are not slouching toward Gomorrah. We are marching to Zion. The worst thing that can possibly happen to us has already happened. We're dead. We were crucified at Skull Place, Golgotha, Calvary, under the wrath of God. And the best thing that could happen to us has already happened. We are alive in Christ and our future is seated at the right hand of God, and He is feeling just fine. Amen? Amen. Folks, is it a scary thing to consider an America that restricts religious liberties, that persecutes Bible-believing Christians, that believes a faithful monogamous marriage between a man and a woman is countercultural? 
Is it a scary thing to consider in America that opens wider the door for babies to be harvested in the interest of science and medicine, and that considers biblical preaching to be hate speech? Absolutely. Those are scary realities. They very well may happen in in the next generation, and some of them are already happening. I say that as one whose profession is in the line of fire. My sermons are on the internet. Someone with a chip on their shoulder could, could um, listen to something I say and submit it to the tolerance police as an example of a hate crime. The mayor of Houston, unsuccessfully at least, subpoenaed the sermons of a number of Houston pastors in one of the um, debates about uh, transgender bathroom issues. But if biblical Christianity, hear this, if biblical Christianity can grow unchecked under the oppressive Chinese communist regime since the Cultural Revolution, if Muslims are turning their lives over to Christ in record numbers today, upon threat of death, or at, at, at least upon threat of getting kicked out of, the, out of the family and losing everything that they hold dear, under the oppressive, watchful uh, regimes of the Muslim government. And if a, a, a murderous persecutor named Saul can be transformed into the greatest evangelism machine the world has ever known, named Paul, why do we fear Why would we worry about what a given president will do if we are seeking the higher and even the highest goal of seeking the global glory of God? He will bring about greatest good for His people. If not through godly government, then through spirit-led revival and ultimately resurrection on that last day. That is our hope. That's what we should be spending our energy and our time and our money and our attention upon, and certainly our prayers. Come, Lord Jesus, blow through this land with your Holy Spirit. Revive dead hearts that you might receive glory as believers in Jesus bow their knee to the King of all kings. Would you pray with me? Lord, we bow before you. You alone are worthy. You alone sit on the true throne and you will for all of time. Pretenders will rise and fall. The kings of the earth will rage and the anointed one will laugh, will scoff, will realize the child's play of nations rising and falling, of kings battling and replacing one another. But you remain. Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are our hope. And we pray these things for your glory and our good. Amen.